0: that we remain committed to protecting disability rights throughout the United States. We've accomplished quite a bit in this country in the last 30 years, but we have a lot of work to do.
1: From the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., this is The Justice Beat. Welcome to the Justice Beat, where we sit down with top leadership to chat about the department's missions, activities, and priorities. Today, we welcome the Civil Rights Division, or what we call CRT. Created in 1957, CRT works to uphold the civil and constitutional rights of all Americans, particularly some of the most vulnerable members of our society. They enforce federal statutes prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, disability, religion, familial status, and national origin. Assistant Attorney General Eric Dryband discusses CRT's role within the department and specifically their role in enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act. We'll also touch on various cases the division has won in support of the act and where Assistant Attorney General Dryband sees the Civil Rights Division in the future. Special Litigation Counsel, Robbie Kirkendall leads the conversation.
2: Here's Robbie. On July 26, 1990, President George H.W. Bush signed into law the Americans with Disabilities Act, landmark legislation affording broad civil rights protections to people with disabilities. The ADA, as it's known, prohibits disability discrimination in employment, in state and local government programs and services, and in private businesses that are open to the public. The Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division plays a central role in enforcing the ADA. I'm Robbie Kirkendall. I'm a special legal counsel in the division's Disability Rights Section, and I'm pleased to be talking today with the head of the Civil Rights Division, Assistant Attorney General Eric Dryband, about the division's ADA efforts 30 years in. Welcome, Eric.
0: Well, thank you, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be here, and good morning.
2: Good morning. First, can you talk a little bit about your role as the Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division?
0: The Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division is the position that I hold. I was nominated in 2017 by the president and later confirmed by the United States Senate for the position, then sworn in. My responsibilities are to lead and and run the, uh, the Civil Rights Division at the United States Department of Justice. So- What I do is I essentially am responsible for and manage and direct the civil rights enforcement uh, of the federal government throughout the United States, working with you and your colleagues and, and our colleagues here at the Justice Department.
2: Can you talk a little bit about the work that the division and the department does on disability rights?
0: Sure. And uh, and I look forward to talking a lot about that this morning. So this year and very soon, we will be celebrating the 30th anniversary of the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we do a lot of work uh, throughout the United States to both enforce that law, to uh, bring public attention to it, to educate individuals with disabilities about their rights and federal law protections that they have under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, And and today, we're going to talk about some of the work of the Civil Rights Division and the Justice Department in general. And I think it's important to note as well that we remain committed to protecting disability rights throughout the United States. We've accomplished quite a bit in this country in the last 30 years, but we have a lot of work to do. And I'm confident that you and your colleagues here at the Civil Rights Division uh, will continue to do fine work in this area and uh, and seek uh, equality of opportunity. Uh, and other opportunities for individuals with disabilities throughout this country.
2: Before we get into a discussion of of more of the work of the division, have you had experience in the past in working with disability rights um, laws uh, or when you came to the division was that when you started working with the ADA?
0: Now, my first introduction to the Americans with Disabilities Act came when I served as a law clerk, uh, shortly after uh, President Bush signed the Americans with Disabilities Act into law. I, I, for two years, just after the enactment and effective date of the law, uh, worked for a judge on the United States Court of Appeals in Chicago. I also served at the United States Department of Labor, where uh, we enforced uh, disability rights protections related to wages for certain individuals with disabilities. And then more recently, um, in the mid-2000s, served as general counsel of the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, the, or known as the EEOC. And that agency is primarily responsible for enforcing the em- employment discrimination protections of the Americans with Disabilities Act with respect to investigations against private sector employers. So I did a lot of work with them. On a more personal level, I think like m- most Americans, I've had family members who have had various kinds of mental and physical impairments uh, that, that are disabling. And, and I've had very close family members, including uh, my brother, who was three years younger than me, who had suffered his whole life um, uh, with a seizure disorder and other impairments. Um, and so when I think about protections, I often think about my brother and how important protections are for, for individuals with disabilities through the lens of my relationship with my brother.
2: That's helpful to know. I, I, As someone who's worked in this area and the department for many years, I do think it's, it's interesting because we all come close to disability at some point in our lives. And I think um, that is a very interesting uh, part of disability rights law. So for us to get started, I'd like to hear what you see as the promise of the ADA
0: I think there are many promises of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I think the law stands for a fundamental American principle that every human life, every individual in this country has value, that we are all equal before the law. We should all be treated equally before the law without respect to a disability or other protected characteristics. This is something that our country has struggled with for a very long time since its founding. Um, And I think extending Civil rights protections to individuals with disabilities, I think, is a recent, relatively recent example of how our country has come to understand uh, the value of extending protections, liberty, and freedom to all Americans in our country. I think it's important, Robbie, to recognize that Congress uh, saw this as well. Uh, One of the things that the Congress found was, and I'm going to quote from what Congress actually said, which is that, quote, the nation's proper goals regarding individuals with disabilities are to assure equality of opportunity, full participation, independent living, and economic self-sufficiency for such individuals. I think this is, this is a critical statement about the value we, we place on individuals and, and the, the notion that in this country, we do not have royalty. We don't have dictators. We don't have people born into aristocracy. We have Americans. And I think all Americans should be protected by civil rights protections. And I think the Americans with Disabilities Act ensures or at least strives to ensure that. In addition, I think what's interesting about the statement is it reflects the fact that we were all in this together. Every person, every American, every state or local government, every business and other institutions have have an important role to play to ensure that not only all Americans enjoy equality of opportunity, equal treatment before the law. Uh, the ability to pursue happiness as they see it within the realm of our legal framework, but also full and equal opportunities to participate in everything this country has to offer.
2: Thank you. Um, I know you've been in the division, you've been the head of the division for a short period of time in the 30 years of the ADA, but I'm wondering if you could talk about how you think we're doing in achieving the goals um, that you talked about that Congress identified?
0: Well, I'm very proud of the work that the Civil Rights Division has done. Um, It is, for me, a real privilege and honor to uh, be a part of that work. Um, And and I just admire so much the work uh, that you do, Robbie, as well as others in the disability rights section of the Civil Rights Division and throughout the the Department of Justice. Um, And we do that in various ways. We do it through enforcing the law, through investigations, through possible lawsuits in federal courts, Uh, which we bring. Um, We also do it through technical assistance, that is advising the public about the obligations and the protections that are available under the law, and through outreach, that is through educating the public in various ways, through information on our website, you know, training sessions, through all kinds of things that, that the department does. In addition, we have several of the sections of the civil rights divisions that focus on enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act and disability rights. I just want to mention a couple of them. Obviously, the disability rights section uh, plays a principal role in enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act, but other sections do as well. So our special litigation section has many very dedicated attorneys and investigators and others, paralegals and staff who help enforce the Americans with Disabilities Act. Our housing and civil enforcement section likewise bring disability rights cases under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and oftentimes those cases relate to housing, as one might imagine. And so they oftentimes will pair up investigations and lawsuits under both the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Fair Housing Act, a landmark 1968 uh, civil rights federal law that we enforce. Uh, And our educational opportunity section uh, is very good at enforcing and seeking protections for individuals with disabilities in education, both at the grade school level, high school and and higher education as well. In addition, the Justice Department is, I think, well positioned throughout the country. We have uh, over 90 United States attorney offices with thousands of lawyers uh, in every judicial district in the country and every state in the country. And they work with our team, with you and others in the disability rights section to prosecute uh, violations of disability rights laws, including especially the Americans with Disabilities Act. And one other thing I, I do want to mention, um, that regrettably in this country, we have uh, a history of what what federal law now protects of as hate crimes. And our criminal section uh, of the Civil Rights Division works with United States Attorney's Offices, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, other law enforcement to prosecute criminally any kind of hate crime against individuals with disabilities. And I think the breadth of the, the work that the Civil Rights Division does reflects, of course, the, the breadth of the, the Americans with Disabilities Act itself and the importance uh, of this work, both here at the Justice Department and if for Americans throughout the country as well. So
2: let's talk about how the Civil Rights Division enforces the ADA. What does that look like? Um, Can you share a bit more about how the division commits resources to enforcing the ADA? Uh,
0: Yes. Uh, The Civil Rights Division takes what I guess I would describe as a multifaceted uh, approach to to advancing rights protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I, I would generally say there are kind of three different categories of types of work that we do. First is technical assistance. Uh, Second, mediation is another area. And then finally, of course, is enforcement of the law through investigations and federal court actions. So first, we review um, around 16,000 complaints a year from individuals or organizations who allege uh, disability discrimination of various kinds. Uh, We refer them, as appropriate, to our sister federal agencies and United States attorney partners. We also take some of those and we see whether we can resolve them through our mediation program. Uh, And attorneys in the Civil Rights Division, in the Disability Rights Section in particular, obviously open and pursue investigations into various allegations about violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act. We also have a team of specialists who respond to, on average, over 500 calls a week, providing what we call technical assistance to people with disabilities. And to covered entities, you know, uh, employers, state and local governments, um, various other places of public accommodation, and what we try to do with there as with all of our work is to help members of the public, whether they're individuals with disabilities or organizations that are covered by the law, uh, to understand both the rights that individuals with disabilities have and the responsibilities that employers, places of public accommodation, state and local governments have to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Just a moment about our mediation program, because I think it's important to understand that the Justice Department doesn't always have to go into federal court, file a lawsuit in order to accomplish a positive result for individuals with disabilities. And our mediation program is something that the Justice Department funds. And it's free, therefore. Uh, And we have a very high success rate. By one measure, 83% of cases mediated result in a successful resolution. In other areas that involve construction of buildings or housing, uh, we have dedicated architects who support our efforts. we have web specialists who help put information on our website, www.ada.gov. And that website has a breadth of information about the law, the regulations, other information that is helpful to everyone in the public. Uh, it's one of the Justice Department's most visited websites. In addition, in terms of outreach, just in the last three years, for example, uh, our attorneys and uh, other uh, disability rights specialists have presented at well over a hundred conferences, and and by doing that, they've directly reached out to thousands of uh, individuals and other members of the public.
2: I think it's interesting you talk a lot about technical assistance and outreach, and I think for many people, you know, they see the Department of Justice as you know the nation's biggest law firm and don't recognize that there's efforts for technical assistance and outreach. Can you? Talk about why, um, in the ADA context, there is we we've, we've found this need or um, role to provide TA and
0: outreach. Well, yes, Robbie. The first reason we provide technical outreach is that Congress has required us to do that, uh, right in the law itself. And I and I think this is uh, an important and and in some ways unusual element of the law in that. I think the Congress that enacted the Americans with Disabilities Act and President George H.W. Bush, who signed it, understood that the goal, the goal here is to create opportunity, equality of, of, of opportunity, and other protections for individuals with disabilities. The goal of the statute is not simply to file lawsuits. Our goal is to educate the public, both individuals with disabilities and organizations that must comply with the law. So that by doing that, in addition to the enforcement efforts we do and that individuals enjoy all aspects of American life through various ways other than an adversarial process that can occur in litigation when people tend to get very upset and be defensive and so forth. So we take the responsibility seriously. Obviously, increasing awareness, we believe, is crucial to compliance with the law. And uh, in general, I think our website, the one I mentioned a few minutes ago, ADA.gov is a fabulous source of information. Uh, it provides regulations, technical assistance information, and other information about our enforcement work as well. Uh, and beyond that, we have something we call the ADA Technical Assistance Program, and that provides uh, free information and technical assistance directly to businesses, to state and local governments, to various other people who were covered by the law or may be interested in it, Nonprofit uh, organizations, for example. Of course, individuals with disabilities and the general public. We also have a nationwide confidential toll-free information line, and that uh, enables people to call in and report allegations of violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act and to do it in a confidential way so that they don't have to worry about retaliation for making such reports.
2: Thank you. Um, Now let's focus on enforcement um, because that's what most people understand about the Department of Justice. Can you talk about the resources that the department is putting into enforcement of the ADA?
0: Uh, Sure. As I mentioned, Robbie, it is our very strong preference to seek voluntary compliance. And we often do that and, and prefer to do that. On the other hand, the Department of Justice is a law enforcement agency, and we are the government's lawyers and litigators. So the law authorizes the attorney general to file enforcement actions, that is, lawsuits in federal court. Uh, and as the assistant attorney general, uh, I essentially act on behalf of the attorney general to bring lawsuits. And I think it's very important that, that the public know, and especially organizations covered by the law know, that if necessary, uh, we will go into federal court and seek to vindicate rights protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. We have over 50 attorneys in the disability rights section and we have many many more lawyers paralegals and support staff around the country in united states attorney's offices who are dedicated uh, to this work and so for example since 2017 we've entered into or more than 200 agreements with employers with state and local governments and private business to remedy disability discrimination allegations and so we will continue to do that we remain committed to enforcing the law in federal court if we need to, uh, but we do have a preference for um, voluntary compliance. Can
2: you share a recent case uh, that exemplifies for you the division's
0: unique place in enforcing the ADA? Uh, Sure, in fact, I'd like to talk about several of our cases. Sounds good. I wanna start with uh, a recent example of what we refer to as our Olmstead work. What I'm referring to here is a 1999 Supreme Court case called Olmstead versus LC. And in that case, the Supreme Court of the United States found that the unnecessary institutionalization of people with disabilities is discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act and can be illegal. So uh, in the last 20, more than 20 years, we have taken the Supreme Court's decision and enforced it in our own work. And uh, by doing that, uh, our work has impacted, we believe in a positive way, uh, over 50,000 individuals uh, with disabilities uh, just through that work alone uh, and and what we try to do is assess whether or not it's possible in a particular case for individuals with disabilities who are institutionalized whether there might be another way under the law where they can participate fully in community life and i want to talk very briefly about uh one case and I'm, I'm 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 very proud of and and very privileged to attend last year a uh, uh, announcement of a settlement agreement uh, with the state of west virginia So in the spring of 2019, after long investigation and and, uh, hard work by the special litigation section as well as the United States Attorney's Office, we settled with the entire state of West Virginia after we found that the state was unnecessarily putting children who have uh, serious emotional or behavioral disorders in residential uh, treatment facilities instead of providing them in-home and community-based mental health services. And in fact, in that case, many of these children were being housed or warehoused several hours away by driving from where their families lived, where they, they were from. Some of the children were, being, were shipped out of state to facilities outside the state of West Virginia. And so I was very happy that uh, we were able to resolve that. We, we worked uh, as a team with the, the state government in West Virginia, led by the governor of West Virginia and others, and, uh, and the U.S. Attorney Mike Stewart, there was instrumental in working with our team uh, to bring about what I regard as a very positive resolution.
2: What sort of remedies um, did you get in that settlement agreement? What sorts of things does the state do? Well,
0: it's a good question, Robbie. The state of West Virginia agreed to many things that I think will enhance uh, life and and opportunities for these children and for their families in the communities in West Virginia. So, for example, West Virginia agreed um, to expand and improve in-home and community-based mental health services throughout the state, rather than sending children so frequently to residential facilities away from their families. So the children will then either be in the home of their, their families or they'll be more frequently in the communities. Uh, and they, as a result of that, they will have access to community-based mental health services that will help them address the, um, emotional and behavioral disorders that they have. In addition, uh, the state of West Virginia agreed to to expand, to create mobile crisis services, uh, a case management system, therapeutic foster care, in-home therapy, uh, and assertive community treatment. And uh, I just think this is a terrific result. The, the, the settlement will ensure that children are no longer uh, unnecessarily put in institutions, uh, especially institutions that were far from their home. And I think I think everyone can agree that children need and, and I think deserve stability in their lives and, the, and especially the ability to be with near or with their families as much as possible. And so I was just thrilled both with the work that, uh, that our team did with United States Attorney Mike Stewart and his team in, in, in West Virginia, and especially the state government of West Virginia, that, that they, uh, they worked with our team and uh, came up with, I think, something that I think will, will last a long time, hopefully for generations in West Virginia to improve the lives of children and their families there.
2: We're in 2020 and voting is, you know, a hot topic. And I know that um, the Disability Rights Section and the U.S. Attorney's Offices have done work um, in the voting space. Can you talk a little bit about um, the efforts that have been undertaken or are being undertaken on voting for people with disabilities?
0: Well, I'm extremely proud uh, Robbie, of the work that, uh, that we've done and uh, in, in, with respect to voting rights of individuals with disabilities. I mean, I think it's critical in our country that every eligible voter with a disability enjoy an equal opportunity to vote that all Americans who, who have the right to vote uh, enjoy. And th- this is, I think, something that defines us as a country, the right to vote. As I mentioned earlier, we do not have aristocrats, we don't have people born into royalty, we don't have dictators, we don't have emperors, we don't have kings and queens in this country. Rather, the American Revolution rejected all of that, and we continue to reject that today for our country. Instead, what we have is we have Americans who can go to the ballot, can vote for their candidate of their choice, and who can select for themselves who our leaders are going to be and who who is going to run the government of this country. This is a fundamental right that secures participation in our democracy, and oftentimes individuals with disabilities become discouraged because they're, if they, for example, have mobility impairments and they're in wheelchairs, they have a hard time just getting to the ballot box and may just give up and not vote at all. And this is a terrible thing when it happens in our country because it effectively means both that we have a violation of the law. When it happens, when that is, when individuals with disabilities cannot vote because of their disability, uh, and we also have then, I think, a restriction on the right to vote that we that we believe in this country should be uh, as nearly universal as it can be. So we have what we call the Americans with Disabilities Act Voting Initiative, and I just want to talk, Robbie, about one case, just as I think indicative of the type of work we do with respect to voting and disability rights. Last year, uh, in 2019. Uh, We reached an agreement with Harris County, Texas. That's the county where Houston, Texas is located. Uh, And that resolved uh, a Department of Justice lawsuit against Harris County in which we alleged that Harris County violated the Americans with Disabilities Act when it did not provide an accessible voting program to voters with disabilities, including especially accessible polling places. Now, Harris County's voting program is one of the largest in the country. That county has millions of people who live there. Obviously, Houston is one of the largest cities in the country. And by one measure, it's the third largest voting program in the entire United States. It includes nearly 800 polling places. And through the agreement, which was came after nearly three years of very hard-fought, tough adversarial litigation, Harris County has agreed to make their polling places accessible to individuals with disabilities, especially mobility impairments. Um, but I think even more important than what Harris County is doing, and and, and I commend them for coming to an agreement with us to, to do what they're doing there. And I think it will open up the right to vote in a way that has not been present once they've done all they need to do under the settlement. But more importantly, I think that case provides notice to election officials all across the United States that the Department of Justice will vigorously enforce the voting protections contained in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we, and we hope too that it will send a message to voters, that is individuals with disabilities who want to exercise their right to vote and may have been discouraged from doing so uh, in the past due to what they've seen in their local polling places or their local communities.
2: So another critical area is in the area of education. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the Americans with Disabilities Act um, addresses education issues.
0: Yes. um, We all know, I think that, uh, Robbie, education has the potential to serve as a great equalizer in our country. And this is no less true for individuals with disabilities. And so the Department of Justice has played and will continue to play a significant role in ensuring that schools and other entities that provide educational programs understand and comply with uh, their obligations uh, with respect to students with disabilities. Uh, I just want to mention briefly uh, one case, uh, initially anyway. This is a case involving Northern Michigan University. The Justice Department recently uh, settled a case with Northern Michigan University. And in that case, the issue was whether or not uh, the the university discriminated against students with uh, mental health disabilities, which we allege they did. Um, Specifically, what we found after an investigation was that the university threatened to expel or disenroll certain students who had major depressive disorder. And in addition to that, the university required these students to sign contracts uh, that barred them uh, from talking, even with their friends at the university, about suicidal or self-destructive thoughts that they may have uh, related to their, their um, major depressive disorder. Uh, fortunately, the university saw the error of its ways, at least as far as I, we, we, we think, uh, and entered into an agreement with us. Uh, they agreed to pay $173,500 in compensatory damages to four students who were injured by what the university had done. Uh, and they also agreed to to adopt a non-discrimination policy and develop training uh, for faculty and staff. And uh, hopefully we won't see this again from Northern Michigan University.
2: Excellent. Now, these have been a, a lot of great examples. They seem to be on sort of larger scale, but... The department doesn't always do big systemic cases, does it, under the ADA? Is it, there's smaller cases as well, aren't
0: there? Uh, That's correct, Robbie. I think it's important to understand that there are times when the Department of Justice will bring a case, a lawsuit, or even a criminal prosecution, where there is one victim uh, or a very small number of victims of, of a violation of the law. And this can be as important as the big cases, because each of these cases both sends a message to the public but also vindicates the rights of the individual who, who may have been victimized by a violation of his or her civil rights in a particular case. So I do want to mention in that regard just one, one case, I think, that reflects this kind of work. And it involves um, the Iowa City Community School District. Just a few weeks ago, we entered into a settlement agreement with, with that school district. And we resolved a complaint it was filed by parents of children with disabilities who alleged that playgrounds in the school district were not accessible to children who use wheelchairs or other mobility devices. Uh, The settlement agreement requires the school district to ensure that playgrounds comply with Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But now the school district is going to comply um, and they're going to remedy the violations uh, related to various aspects of these playgrounds, uh, such as benches, picnic tables, accessible routes to play areas, and, and things of that nature. I think it's important to think about here, we're talking about children who want to play on a playground. You know, it's very possible that the people who designed the playgrounds there weren't thinking in, in some kind of hostile way towards children in wheelchairs or with mobility impairments. But hostility is not something that is an element of the claim here. Rather, what matters is that these children now will be able to join their peers and be able to enjoy a playground just like any other child. Uh, this is not a case in which millions of dollars were at stake. It's not a case in which, you know, it's going to make the front page of the New York Times or something. But it is a case, I think, that is important because for these children in Iowa, it's heartbreaking to think that they couldn't go to a playground. I commend both the Iowa City Community School District for agreeing to do what they're they're doing now by, by fixing these playgrounds, but also the parents of the children who came forward to us and brought this to our attention. And I, I just want to read, Rob, if it's okay... Something I said when we we uh, publicly when we entered into the agreement with the Iowa City Community School District, nearly 30 years after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, no child with a disability should be prevented from accessing a playground because it has been constructed in violation of the ADA. This settlement agreement will ensure that children with disabilities can access their school's playground and play alongside their classmates.
2: From my time in the division, I know that we continue to receive a significant number of complaints regarding service animals. Um, It's just, for whatever reason, a continuous, longstanding complaint. Recently, we've started to receive a a high volume of complaints involving veterans with service animals. Can you talk a little bit about some of that work?
0: Yes, that's important work that we do, Robbie. I'm glad you mentioned it. The Civil Rights Division, of course, is committed to ensuring that individuals with disabilities, including veterans, veterans who've often sacrificed their well-being for our country, and so that they can exercise their their right under the Americans with Disabilities Act to use service dogs. We had a case recently in which a a veteran uh, drove many, many hours uh, in her car, uh, accompanied by her service animal. And by four in the morning, she was tired, uh, as any of us would be. She pulled into a hotel, uh, the Deerfield Inn and Suites Hotel, uh, and she wanted a room. Uh, there were rooms available, but when the desk clerk learned that she was accompanied by her service dog, the desk clerk refused to honor a reservation that she had made and insisted that no dogs were permitted at the hotel. Uh, the veteran, she explained uh, that, that uh, this wasn't just any dog. This was a highly trained animal who, who was required for her uh, disability uh, and, and a disability that she acquired in the service of our country. As a, Still, the clerk uh, would not relent and did not relent. And as a result, uh, this veteran uh, ended up sleeping in her car in the parking lot of her church. Um, this was uh, wholly unacceptable to us. And so we brought in enforcement action. And fortunately, uh, the hotel uh, agreed to adopt a service animal policy to train and staff and compensate uh, this veteran for her experience. And I think it's just one example uh, of things that veterans and other individuals with disabilities experience in our country, but uh, it's something that we remain very committed to in terms of pursuing these kind of cases.
2: So we've talked about a lot of uh, businesses and state and local governments. We talk a little bit about employment. I know that's near and dear to your heart because of your work with the EEOC, but You talk about some of the employment uh, results that the department has
0: achieved. Delighted to do that. And yes, Robbie, I had a a lot of cases involving uh, individuals with disabilities when I served at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and we have a lot at the Justice Department as well. First of all, let me step back here and talk about what employment means to many of us. Uh, And work can provide more than just a paycheck to all of us. It provides a sense of purpose. Dignity, independence, value, self-worth, and belonging. I wanted to mention one case uh, very briefly. First of all, we, re- we retain jurisdiction over litigation against public employers. The EEOC, my former agency, uh, retains jurisdiction over other private sector employers for litigation. But in a, we had one case individu- recently in which an individual with dwarfism alleged that he was discriminated against while he applied for a job as a purchasing manager uh, for York County, South Carolina. Now the county, for reasons that are unclear, required applicants for the purchasing manager position to have a driver's license, but drive, being, uh, having a driver's license was not an essential function of the job of purchasing manager. And what we found was that by requiring a driver's license anyway that the county unlawfully screened out people with disabilities. So we brought an enforcement action, we sued, the case settled, uh, and York County agreed to revise its policies to ensure that its job listings, contain only the essential functions of the job. They designated a uh, coordinator for the Americans with Disabilities Act, provide training, uh, and they paid the individual $20,000. It wasn't a huge case, but it was critically important uh, both to the individual who who suffered this kind of discrimination, but I think also to send a message to the public that, that we won't tolerate that kind of thing.
2: Have we seen in the employment context much discrimination involving stereotyping? I, I seem to recall that We've recently entered into an agreement with Lanier Technical College. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yes.
0: Yeah. So I think I think what happens oftentimes is that people make certain assumptions that if an individual has a type of physical or mental impairment, it must mean something for their ability or inability to do a particular job. And these kind of stereotypes and assumptions about people uh, are something that I think the law attempts to discourage. In the case you mentioned involved a college called Lanier Technical College. And in that case, there was an individual who had multiple sclerosis. And the college fired her because of the multiple sclerosis, or that's what we alleged anyway. And so we sued, and uh, the college agreed to revise its policies uh, to ensure compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, to train staff, to file periodic reports with the Department of Justice about its compliance, and it also agreed to pay $53,000 to the, the individual um, in back pay and compensatory damages. And I thought that was an excellent result for both her uh, and for and for Lanier Le- Technical College too, because it's in their interest to both comply with the law, but also to hire and retain individuals with disabilities as well.
2: I've noticed that you've talked a lot um, in the remedies uh, in many of these agreements about training being a component you talked earlier about TA and a little about outreach. Uh, can you talk about the outreach that the department does for people with disabilities or covered entities?
0: On the outreach front, I just want to talk by way of example about the Justice Department's response to the opioid epidemic that has plagued our country for a long time now. By way of example, in two, since 2018, in collaboration with the United States attorney offices around the country, we've mounted a substantial outreach effort to combat discrimination against people with what's called opioid use disorder. These are individuals who had uh, addictions to opioids. They're in treatment or recovery. Uh, And since 2017, the Disability Rights Section presented at over 30 conferences and trainings to more than 3,000 attendees, uh, including addiction counselors, medical providers, uh, family court judges, uh, drug court professionals, employment attorneys, and representatives from more than 60 federal agencies, all about opioid use disorder and the protections uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I think that all of this work, in addition to our enforcement efforts, is helping uh, our country's response to this this opioid ec- uh, epidemic.
2: So looking forward as the ADA turns 30, can you share your thoughts on what you see as some of the most pressing disability rights issues?
0: Yes, I think I think it's clear There's there remains a lot of work to do in areas such as employment, in transportation, in, and in education, just to name a few. Oftentimes, those kind of things are interconnected with one another. So, uh, for example, if people can't get to work uh, because of transportation barriers, they can't hold a job. Likewise, a denial of educational opportunity can have a significant effect on uh, employment opportunities. So if an individual with disability is deprived of the chance to go to school or to go to a particular kind of training or educational opportunity, uh, that will have a detrimental effect on their employment opportunities down the road and may follow them their whole lives. And so what we will continue to do is we will continue to be committed to the ADA's goals of full participation uh, in all aspects of American life, including independent living, equal opportunity and economic self-sufficiency. And and I want to add too, Robbie, that it's important to recognize that we're, we're not alone here at the Justice Department. We have our sister agencies committed to this work as well. Other agencies uh, around the federal government and state and local partners uh, are tremendous advocates for disability rights. There are members of the public, disability rights advocates are important to making progress uh, with respect to our goal of, of opportunity and fair treatment for individuals with disabilities, and so we're all in this together, and uh, we were committed to our enforcement efforts, our outreach, and our technical assistance work.
2: I have to touch on the ADA's role at this particular point in time as the nation continues to battle a pandemic. Um, What do you say to listeners with disabilities who may wonder if the ADA even applies during a public health emergency or who worry about disability discrimination as we all work to safely reopen our economy?
0: Robbie, that's a very important question. And let me say a couple things first. Uh, there is no exception in the Americans with Disabilities Act to pandemic emergencies. So people don't get a pass about whether or not they are permitted lawfully to discriminate against individuals with disabilities because their pandemic exists. We are in our country going through a very difficult period in our history with the pandemic. Uh, more than 100,000 people already have died. Many others are sick or have been sick with the COVID 19. It's a very serious issue. Many people have lost their jobs. Americans are suffering. But let me be clear, though, that even as we fight you know, what is really a life-threatening virus, the fundamental purpose of the law, the, that is, the Americans with Disabilities Act, remains in place, uh, and we will continue to enforce it. When the pandemic initially started uh, three, four months ago, there was some talk about rationing, for example, of health care to the detriment of individuals with disabilities. I published at that time a statement said that we would not tolerate that kind of health care rationing based because of disability status. As far as I know, that hasn't happened. Uh, but there were, was talk about that. We won't tolerate it here at the Justice Department. Individuals with disabilities have the same right to access to health care as all Americans do. Hopefully this pandemic will pass uh, soon. But to all listeners, if you believe that you're experiencing disability discrimination, please consider going to our website uh, to file a complaint or call our ADA information line. Uh, we're here every day to serve the public, and we will continue to do that.
2: And one more time, what was that website address again?
0: Uh, www.ada.gov. Great.
2: Thank you for joining us today. Do you have any
0: closing remarks, Eric? I do, Robbie. So thank you for asking that question. So I, I think one of the things to remember here is that disability rights like the right to vote, like the right to be free of race and sex discrimination. Disability rights are civil rights. And I think it is critically important that individuals with disabilities enjoy all of the privileges and freedoms available to all Americans. And every day, these fundamental principles remain the touchstone of our work. And on this anniversary, I'd like to remember and pay tribute to President George H.W. Bush. For our listeners, read something that he said just before he signed the Americans with Disabilities act into law in 1990. And here's what he said, and I'm going to quote, our success with this act proves that we are keeping faith with the spirit of our courageous forefathers who wrote in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Today's legislation brings us closer to that day when no Americans will ever again be deprived of their basic guarantee of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. President Bush's remarks, I think, remind us both that the Americans with Disabilities Act is an important civil rights law, but it is also simply the continuation of a tradition in this country that started with the Declaration of Independence about the importance of guaranteeing to everyone in this country inalienable rights because of who they are, not because of what they are, but who they are. They are a human being. They are entitled to respect and be treated decently. And that's what this law does. And it's my honor and privilege uh, to lead the Civil Rights Division's efforts uh, in implementing the ADA mandate toward these ends.
2: Thank you so much, Eric. I want to thank you for your time today and for sharing so much information about the department's ADA work. I know I speak for the entire Disability Rights Section, and the many others in the division and the U.S. Attorney's Offices when I say that it is a privilege to work alongside you to ensure that the great promise of the ADA is fully realized. And I can't wait to see what we accomplish by the ADA's 35th anniversary.
0: I look forward to that as well, Robbie, and thank you for your kind remarks. It's a privilege and pleasure to work with you and our other colleagues here in the department and the division as well.
2: Thank you, Eric. Thank you.
1: Thank you to Robbie and Eric for helping us celebrate 30 years of the Americans with Disabilities Act. For more information about the ADA, please visit ada.gov. For more information on the work CRT does every day, please visit justice.gov/crt. Thank you for listening and please stay tuned. Subscribe for new episodes at justice.gov/podcast. The Justice Beat is produced by the Justice Department's Office of Public Affairs. Find out more about the Justice Department at justice.gov.